It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Hey, Chris. Hey, Andrew. Do you know what time of the year it is? Prime spring climbing season. It is, it is, but I was going to say it's our annual Mount Everest bash. Oh, really? On the run out. <laughs> <laughs> because it's ever season, and um, I'm kind of mindlessly scrolling through uh, news reports about what's going on on the world's, I'd say, best mountain. That's pretty much universal. Absolutely. Accepted, yeah. Right? Yeah. The world's best mountain. But I got to say, it's like more of the same shit. So I don't know if I can bring myself to bash Everest this year, Chris. Ah, well, uh, isn't the Chinese side closed? It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. There's like, I'm telling you, they're building their, they're building their capsule on this, um, the summit ridge. Remember that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's what they're building. Full service uh, capsule. No, the, it's like, you know, people are dying and, you know, tour operate, janky tour operators are to blame. And, you know, there's Sherpas who are working for these janky tour operators that are stealing caches on the mountain. And, you know, it's just more of the same shit. And there's like 500 million summits this year. So I don't know what there is to say. There's like some deaf people who climbed it. And then there's, there's the uh, double amputee above the knees. That's the first above the knee double amputee who's climbed Everest. And I know that because I interviewed the first below the knee double amputee who climbed Everest uh, years ago. That was actually the first story I ever worked on as, as a climbing writer. Um, really? Yeah, in college. Yeah, he hadn't climbed Everest at that point. It's this guy named Mark Inglis. Uh, but he he lost his legs um, on Mount Cook in New Zealand. And I was mm-hmm. studying abroad down there and kind of got this wild idea to write a story about him because he had just done you know the tallest mountain in on the south island and um i kind of had that idea to just like interview this guy and so it was like kind of this self-education and how to do journalism and i drove up to his house and he, he lives on this vineyard and I sat on his couch and i you know pulled out this tape recorder i bought at the store and and um asked like the biggest softball questions you know imaginable for 45 minutes and um, and then left, you know, and then spent the next six months trying to write this feature and failed miserably, like just made every mistake that there is to mm. make. Mm. So it was actually a great experience because I did all the mistakes at once and, um, and learned a lot from that. But did it get published anywhere? No. Oh, so you no, just wasted this guy's time is what you're telling me. Um, yes, he, <laughs> I wasted 45 minutes of his time and six months of my life. <laughs> seems like a fair trade but yeah it was uh but he anyway. climbed did he do the seven summits because i th- did he climb kilimanjaro too i don't know i didn't oh, fo- okay. i didn't keep up with him he actually he climbed everest like probably 10 years after i mm-hmm. interviewed him and uh he ended up like passing this guy who was dying and needing help on his way to the summit and there's people who were rightfully in my opinion giving him shit for that so right yeah more of the same shit on everest but right. um yeah i don't know i don't know where that came from i just saw this like opportunity like i had been living in this country and i heard this story that i felt like no no one in america was paying attention to and it just kind of seemed like i was in this place and had this opportunity and you know it, it could work out to like be this you know story that i could get published but it ended up going nowhere but it was really really 
useful and foundational for for me as a writer to go through go through that DIY journalism school you know like Mm -hmm. I think that doing something like that is far better than what you might learn in like at Columbia journalism school or something like that anyway um what were we talking about today we're bashing Everest so let's just uh consider it bashed yeah consider Uh it bash um nothing's gonna change there and uh I don't know why people still waste all their money trying to do it anything to add to that Chris (laughs) No, <laughs> I think we've made our views clear. <laughs> um, but I would go climb Everest if someone paid for me to do it. Is our friend Bridget Epitropakis going to make it to base camp? I, she made some note of that on Twitter and I haven't heard her anything from. I don't from, know. We need to follow yeah. up on that because that's an amazing. Yeah, yeah she could would be, be there right now. She could be right, doing a set right now in, yeah. in the North Face tent. Yeah, so it, to, just to remind you, uh, Bridget was on the show, comedian climber, and last I'd heard, at least she posted on Twitter that she had actually booked a trek to Everest Base Camp with the idea of doing a couple sets of comedy up there, which which was germinated on our show. Um, so anyway, Bridget, if you're listening, please update us on what's happening with your Everest comedy set because, I mean, it is that is like in itself is just this multi-leveled comedy satire like (laughs) art piece that i mean it doesn't matter like how it goes like the fact that if she gets up on a mic in one of those big base camp tents and she does a five minute stand-up routine i mean it's like you've you've just crushed the final pillar of of everest climbing it's (laughs) it's gonna be amazing so i hope she's out there doing it right now like she's she's like heavy breathing through a through a uh you know, hypoxically breathing through a uh a set right now would be amazing she could be the first person with a sense of humor to reach the summit of everest one day <laughs> i don't know fucking leo holding's been up there that guy <laughs> that guy's got a sense of humor i think i would hope <laughs> he pulled um, at a ferrari uh hood plate to El Cap like come on I mean yeah all the if there's any Brit who's climbed Everest then it's for sure they've got a good sense of humor um well I thought that instead of bashing Everest um as we normally (laughs) do this time of year (laughs) we could pivot and bash um a different group of people who um the people who climb and rifle with us (laughs) (laughs) they don't need bashing they need drying (laughs) they need to be toweled off actually at this point (laughs) yeah so we we chris and i for listeners um we were out there on the uh the last day of the season and the camp post was out there and he was distributing um every type of animal species to every climber out there to make sure that there was one male, one female of every animal on earth. And we all loaded up into a boat and we um, loaded them into Noah's sprinter van (laughs) and drove away before the, uh, before the floods unleashed. Now the canyons closed and, um, there's no climbing and rifle this year forever. (laughs) (laughs) You heard it here. It's closed. It's done. (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, the river, we had a huge winter here in Colorado, so the snow's melting and all the rivers are just raging like 
I've never seen them, which is really cool. I think we finally reached um, no, or we're, we, for the first time, we're not in like a considered a drought technically, you know, in the Western part of the state for, for this year. Um, for the first time in like a decade or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is great. So obviously we need all of that, but people are angsty about not getting their rifle burns in. I would say. Yeah, they swept the they swept the canyon clean. Like there was a few people. Um, I know the Linders were there. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a few people that already kind of locked in for the season, and they they kicked everybody out. Yeah, um, I left actually that day before they kicked us out, but but they they had warned us it was probably going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because it's like in you know biblical flood aside, it's simply that when the water's on the road, if you drive through there, it it jacks the road up. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's not like it's, you probably couldn't drive through with a four wheel drive at least that day, but yeah, they got to close it down just to protect the resource. Um, a bunch of camp campsites were already flooded. The pit toilet was getting close to being flooded, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, presents its own problems. So yeah, they, they shut her down. This is kind of a bummer, obviously, cause that's a local spot for us. Um, but it's just interesting to see the response that people have to, of an event like this like there's you just kind of feel like this angsty tension like you know just like this is ruining my four i've been training for the last four months for this one right. route that i didn't do last season and now yeah wait and, who are you talking about right now um i'm i'm subtweeting <laughs> you <laughs> yeah we should we should minus tell the story. training minus the training part yeah, of it minus the training <laughs> you trained by rebuilding an engine mm-hmm. um no, you you uh you continued your your stellar streak of punting off the top of your project, <laughs> exactly. which began last fall and continued right on right. into into the last. Well, day my opening day on it was also closing day on it, unfortunately, <laughs> um, and I fell off the top move twice, didn't I? <laughs> so. Three times. Yeah. Well, no, I fell lower this third second time. It yeah. was a stupid fall, but it was. Anyway, but yeah, no, that that was kind of a so I, the angsty person was actually me. We're actually referencing me because yeah. I was like, "Oh, I'm so close. I'll get it next time." And then there is no next time, at least for now. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are expecting it to open up like soon, but I'm not. Yeah, because I think it's going to get damaged, and then they're going to have to work on the damage. And since the city's you know in charge of that, it'll probably take a little while to you know sign the sign the paperwork and get the budget and people assigned and the trucks out there, you know, with the way bureaucracies yeah. work, it might take a few minutes to get the road repaired and the, the campsites repaired before they let anybody back in, even if the water goes down, which it's supposed to peak anytime in the next couple weeks, mm-hmm. actually. So anyway, we, you, you kind of get the sense too that, well, I, I will say one thing that that's good about the climbing community in general, and particularly here, if there was like, an opportunity to coordinate with the town to like sandbag up the da- the river, or, you know, build dams or just right. People would do that for sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. To be able to get a burn on their proj. Are you for kidding? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Suck a yeah. nail out of a piece of wood. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> the thing is, is that we, we then were forced to um, contemplate all of our other cliffs and a bunch of those are on the other side of various uh, bodies of water as well so mm-hmm. it's been a little tricky just to find a place to climb this this spring and yeah it sounds like a sort of entitlement privilege kind of thing but you know it's like you're 
it's like if you were a basketball fan and they canceled the basketball season, you'd be fucking pissed. You know, yeah, it's not sure. specific to climbing. I don't think we, it's what we plan our spring around. And you know, when your plans get changed, you get a little bit fucking anxious about it. It's not like we're nobody's sneaking into rifle to try to get their climbs done. It's yeah. like, yeah. You know, I think everybody's just like, oh, well, we'll just move on. But um, the angst is there because, yeah, that's what we, that's what we, uh, that's what we do. <laughs> For sure. It's understandable. Yeah. There's just like this added, like, kind of monomania that uh, I associate with rifle climbers that mm-hmm. makes it particularly Absolutely. worse, you know? Well, like there's people who and, climb here who yeah. only do the same warm ups and then try their one project. And they've been doing that every time they climb there for the last year or two years or more. Right. And, um, and so this, this is just this, it, it, you get the sense that they're like, this shall not stand. Like the, we, you know, this is just unacceptable to me. Right. Totally. Um, instead of kind of going with the flow. Well, and it interrupts like the, it, you know, we're like this, the swallows. Is it the swallows that return to Capistrano? I think that's kind of right. bird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we are, you know, it's like, that's what we do. It's like, it dries out and it stops seeping and that's when you show up and like half the front range shows up and, mm-hmm. you know, parks their vans and it's like, all right, here we are again. And <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's interesting cause it's like a migratory pattern that's been, you know, it's like we, we drained the, you know, the, the waterfowls like spring mating area and now they don't know what to do. It's like, that's, <laughs> We're, we're them. We're like, we're, we're like in the, in the air, just like, we we can't land there anymore. Like, where are we supposed to go? Fuck. You know, like, oh my God. Yeah. Like National Geographic would be having a freak out if like a whole, a a whole like migration pattern of animals just couldn't reach their, you know, their spawning ground. Yeah, exactly. They're like caribou. The sprinter vans have met up with some. You know, fence or some pipeline that was put up in the interim, like in Alaska. <laughs> There's all the you just see all these sprinter vans like bunched up at the edge of the rifle, like trying to get in there and like. <laughs> anyway, rifles closed. Don't come. <laughs> There'll be no mating in rifle this season. All right, go mate somewhere else. <laughs> but where? But where? <laughs> Dead sleep. <laughs> Savannah Cummins is a filmmaker, photographer, and all-around professional climber. Well, Sav, you and I met out in Joe's Valley about a year ago, or was it two years ago? I can't remember. Honestly, I don't remember either. I think it must have been a year ago. Okay. Yeah. I was I was just thinking about that before, but time has become a flat circle for me, so I don't, um, like, I wake up and I do work that I don't recall what it is, and then I go to sleep, and then sometimes I go climbing and I fall a lot, and then the year's over and it just happens all the time. Like that's like basically my year right now. Um, so I can't recall, uh, how long ago it was that we were recording this, um, little interview for your film about El Gavilan, but, um, we did that out in Joe's Valley and well, it was just an honor to be part of your film because it's a great film, but it was also cool to just kind of spend time with you and hear some of your stories about your life and like kind of what you're going through. And we haven't really like spend too much time together but every time we do i always 
hear just the most fascinating things that you're up to. And so I'm really psyched to have you on the podcast. I know you're kind of reticent and reclusive about uh, coming on these things. So thank you for um, thank you for joining the show. Yeah, I'm definitely honored to be a part of it. I remember Chris asking me years ago if I wanted to come on the Enorma cast and I was like, I'm not cool enough yet. Like, give me give me a few more years. So I've got some more stuff to talk about. But you've yeah. made it. I feel well, you, I feel sort of right. cool. You're cool enough. Once you feel good. <laughs> I don't know about that, but <laughs> I mean anyone's cool enough right. to be on the run out, no. but you know, yeah. I th- I think you're at Enorma cast level too. <laughs> Sweet. Well thanks. <laughs> Um, you you have a, like a kind of an amazing career as a professional climber and person, you know, kind of sponsored by the North Face. You've gotten some pretty cool opportunities to and, and adventures to be a part of. Um, you know, I guess maybe one of the biggest and most audacious ones was that Antarctica trip you went on, you know, three or four years ago. So why don't you just like give us like how do you describe your, you know, your kind of professional climbing status and how? I don't know, when people ask you what you do and who you are, like, how, how do you answer that question? Well, to start, I definitely don't like to call myself a professional climber. When I was invited onto the North Face team in 2017, it was such an amazing opportunity that I couldn't say no to because it was like getting to travel and climb and work with these people that I had been looking up to. But I wasn't at the same level as a lot of these people, but I also didn't want to say no because there's this amazing opportunity right in my hands. So kind of a weird scenario for me because I've never really considered myself a professional athlete, but I like to kind of be behind the scenes and try to keep up with the professional athletes and document and tell their stories. Um, and, and the other thing about my climbing is I've never really like gotten good at one thing. I've always wanted to just be well-rounded and be able to do kind of everything at any moment. And that's helped me a lot in my uh, like photo and filmmaking career as well, which is, I guess, what I describe myself more as as a photographer and filmmaker. Out of curiosity, did, did the North Face or whoever you were interfacing with, whether it was Conrad or anyone like that, I mean, when, when they do that, do they cite something that caught their eye or a, a project? I mean, you know, because I've, I've talked to a bunch of people who are sponsored by various companies that feel like they weren't worthy, you know, uh, which you, not that I'm saying you were, but you kind of mentioned that a second ago. Um, but something obviously caught their eye. Do you know kind of what it was that brought you into their fold? I still don't really know what it was. You know, the first person that I talked with was Conrad and he was like, we should talk, you know, who I work for. And I was kind of like, Okay. Mysterious. <laughs> yeah, but I was like, he sent a person in a in a beamer with a suitcase handcuffed to his, his wrist to, yeah, to pick you up and bring you to a secure location. <laughs> exactly. But so, like, yeah, I was like, okay, like, I want to know more. So he introduced me to. I had like an in person meeting with him. We were just like in the same area at the same time, and had an in person meeting with him. And I like I never really asked him what it was, but I think at the time North Face was just trying to bring on more women onto the team. And so it was kind of just right time, right place for me. You definitely lucked out with that because, um, yeah, like I said, alluded to, you got to go to the Queen Maud land in Antarctica, which I think is kind of one of those trips that you couldn't really do otherwise. Um, or it would certainly be an onerous task to, to put together an expedition of that kind. 
So yeah, what's uh, what's your like big picture takeaway on what, what the last like you know five or six years have been like? You know, being on the North Face team and getting some of these opportunities. Oh man, that that Antarctica trip was definitely kind of a life changing trip for me. Just being so new to the team, and then also just having such a public eye on it, um, which was also hard because I felt like I had no business being there because I was still just like kind of a somewhat newer climber and newer to photo and film and looking up to these people that have been doing it for years. But I learned a lot from that trip and it like, it didn't scare me. It made me want more. And I think it, it could have scared me and could have, I could have gone the other way and been like, this is not for me, but it kind of just made me more passionate about it and about climbing and filming and adventuring. And I wanted more and I still want more. What was scary? Was it the horrendous rock that you were climbing or was it the moment of um, rappelling off of Alex Honnold's body as the anchor on like one? I believe that was a detail I recall from that trip. Yeah, that is. We did rappel off of Alex's body. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the rock was really bad. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, my dream. Sorry. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, what was scary for me was being the youngest and newest person on the team in a place, in a a really remote place. I hadn't done much like route development or uh, exploration kind of climbing. And so I was just completely out of my element. And that's just like going into the unknown is is scary, right? And maybe not for everybody, but for me, sometimes going into the unknown can be scary. And so that's that's kind of what I'm referencing being scary. You know, there's certainly ways in which you could have grabbed a couple people off the North Face team, come up with your own expedition and gone off and done it. But it is pretty wild that like they were all there, you know, Conrad was there and Jimmy was there and Alex was there and like it just went on and on. And it must have been sort of professionally intimidating in that sense as well. Very professionally intimidating. And, you know, we had CBS and that geo involved as well. And we were having to give live updates while we were there and like working with this kind of shitty satellite device, trying to send photos at like midnight when it's negative 30 degrees in a dome tent. (laughs) It was just, it was a lot. I mean, Conrad fancies himself, uh, you know, this talent scout in a lot of ways. Um, So obviously again, going back to my first question, he saw something. Uh, Yeah. Like I said, I don't know what he saw in me, but I'm grateful that he saw something and, feel like I've tried to make the best of it and run with all the opportunities that I've gotten. Well, speaking of um, making the best of it, you've, you've actually had like kind of a string of bad luck over the last couple of years that um, you, you clued me into uh, last year when we were um, filming for the El, El Gavilan film that you just created, uh, which I'd like to talk about too, but maybe the, the best segue is to just catch us up on um, some of the injuries that you've gone through because it's kind of a horrendous string of tragic uh, events and also just failures with the broader medical establishment. Um, So take us from the top there. Yeah. So in March, 2020, I had a project um, with Red Bull that was funded and I was going to shoot uh, this route called Logical Progression down in Mexico. And I got funding to um, get my boyfriend at the time and his climbing partner, Aaron Livingston, to go kind of rig the route, basically just they really wanted to climb it and it was a way for me to let them go climb it um, and to help us out by bringing ropes down and just putting them on the wall, which we didn't need them to necessarily do that. But 
we were already going to be going in with so much equipment. Just like having the ropes already there was going to be helpful, even though you do wrap the root. But still, it was going to be nice and they were stoked to climb it. And I was there the year prior with Maddie Hong and Matt Siegel. And before the day before we started climbing, we got this terrible snowstorm and we were like in a foot of snow on top of this big wall in Mexico. It was kind of crazy. But we wrapped the route and then the only way out is to climb up. And so we were kind of rushing to get out. And every day in the afternoon, there's this really beautiful golden light hitting the wall. And I was like, I want to shoot this so bad. And we didn't have time because we were just rushing to get out. So anyways, Red Bull came along and was like, do you have any projects you want to pitch? And I um, suggested this. And then Nolan and Aaron were there and the same thing happened. A snowstorm hit the day before they were about to start climbing. And we were texting on the inreach a little bit and talking on the phone a little bit and trying to decide like what to do. And they felt good about going in, uh, wrapping in and trying to climb out still. But the timeline was shrunken a little bit. Like they, they kind of had like a day less than what they thought that they were going to have. But so on, I want to say the second day, my memory is a bit of a blur from this time now, but I think on the second day they were trying to get to uh, the Critter Bibby and climbing at night and Nolan was climbing on, I forget which pitch, maybe pitch 11 or 12, something like that. He was like maybe 1,500 feet off the deck and a rock broke beneath his feet and cut his rope really like right beneath his feet and he fell all the way to the ground. And I got a text from his partner, Aaron, saying Nolan fell to the ground or Nolan's rope cut and he's dead on the ground and kind of just like hit me and I was in shock. And then Nolan being your boyfriend. Nolan being my boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah. So Nolan was my partner at the time. And so it was like, I just knew immediately what had happened because I'd been there and I know, like I knew how high up they were and I knew that you don't survive a fall like that. And in his first text, he didn't actually say that he was dead. He just said that his rope was cut and that he fell. But it was like I instantly knew. And that was a just, yeah, it was just crazy, like having to deal with something like that, calling his family, having to go down there and rescue his body, and then coming back to the States and everything being shut down because of COVID. And... It was like coming back and everything being shut down from COVID was was good in a way for me, for for the state that I was in, because I was kind of forced to sit and deal with the emotions and I couldn't just like run away on the next trip and the next expedition and just keep running from the pain, I guess. Um, But it was really hard and really isolating as well. Yeah, because didn't, uh, you know, I talked to Aaron about this. It, it shut down while you were down there. So you left with things ramping up, a little worry about this virus, and then came back to the post. I mean, I think it was like the 7th or 8th or 9th or something like that of March that like the kind of country pulled the ripcord and schools were canceled and things like that. You had to drop into that. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, in retrospect that you say, and and, you know, making the best of a bad situation to say that, yeah, maybe it was, it was okay for me to be isolated and things like that, but I can't, I mean, I've tried to wrap my head around it talking to Aaron and, and it, 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 I don't know, that sounds pretty intense to be isolated during something like that. And, um, so good on you for, for, you know, 
turning it into something that was therapeutic um, if you needed that. But it sounds like it was probably pretty intense as well. It was intense. And, and you know, I've, I've had a lot of friends that have lost partners. And one of my good friends, um, Jim Morrison, he lost um, he's lost two partners now. And I remember talking to him after Nolan died. And he was like, the hardest thing for me was after his partner died in a plane crash, like going out every day and the world was still oh, going. Right. Like he was still seeing people like smiling and happy. And he was like, why are people smiling and happy? Obviously, because they didn't have this tragic thing just happen. But that was something that I didn't really experience because like every, the whole world was grieving, right? Like they weren't all grieving the loss of my boyfriend, but they were, they were grieving the loss of so many different things. Yeah. And, and certainly like, you know, people were not sort of asking much of you at the time, I'm sure it was helpful as well because, you know, people who have those things happen and they have jobs and it's, or, or whatever families other than, you know, outside of the person that was lost, it's like those, that all goes on as well. So that, you know, thinking about it from that perspective, you know, to be able to just be left alone um, versus having to go to work because you can't lose your job or, you know, any situation you could imagine. Um, yeah. You were, you were allowed to just, yeah. I mean, it was okay to just go, go isolate yourself and, and be sad. Yeah, totally. And, and I ended up just going climbing a lot. It was like kind of this weird time where people are like, we shouldn't be climbing outside, but I just went to places where I knew there would be no people and just, yeah, hung out by myself and some friends and got the time that I needed. I mean, that's, it's an experience that we, we've all had, or it, certainly if you climb long enough, you will have, you will have this experience either vicariously or directly to some level um, at some point, because it's just kind of the reality of our sport. What was helpful for you to deal with this? You know, you, you mentioned being isolated and stuff, but like, was there other things that you did or was there a certain, you know, some kind of process of just coming to terms with just this cold and brutal reality of that this person you love is no longer in your life and it looks different for everyone. So I'd just be curious to hear a little bit more about what it was that allowed you to, and maybe you haven't reached that point yet in your life, but yeah, just tell us a little bit about what allowed you to move forward. I think the thing that allowed me to move forward was probably seeing his body, to be honest, like being able to go down to Mexico see the accident, see him, see exactly what happened and not have any questions. I have other friends that have lost partners climbing and they've maybe disappeared or they haven't been able to find them or they weren't able to get to their bodies or whatever it might be and still have so many questions. And I think for me, just being able to know exactly what happened, like just helped me process it much better. Like I don't, I don't have any questions. I don't like, I know that he's not out there running around. Like I don't have crazy dreams about that anymore. Like I did the first few nights before we had found him. I was like, he's probably still alive. Like the cartel captured him or something, you know, but like at the day that we found his body, it was like, it was like a week, maybe, maybe five to seven days after the accident had actually happened because there was bad weather. The day that we found his body was like the best day that the best night of sleep I had had in since I got the news. Um, so that was a big thing for me. And then I like, I think just understanding it and knowing that it's just part of what we do. 
Well, on, on one level it is, but on another level, there, there, the circumstances of that accident are just so freakish and out of the blue. I mean, to be standing on a ledge that appears to be just a normal solid belay ledge or something like that and having it crumble under your feet and you're, and then you're gone is um, horrifying on a lot of levels and uh, bad luck, just really, really bad luck. And um, I struggle with what to make of bad luck in, in moments like these. Like it's, there's really interesting kind of philosophical paths that you can take when you, when you think about the role of luck in all of our lives, whether it's good or really bad. And we often don't credit the good luck that we have in our lives as um, being the thing that allows us to succeed. But it's very obvious when bad luck is the thing that takes life away from us. And, um, and so I find that an interesting thing to ponder. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on just the, the kind of freakishness of the, the circumstances of his accident. Yeah, it was, it was a total freak accident. And that was really hard to wrap my mind around too. Cause it was like, I couldn't be mad at anybody. Like I couldn't be mad at Aaron or Nolan for doing something wrong, for doing something stupid. Like, they it they didn't do anything wrong like they were they were doing everything right and it was just total freak accident which and i wonder yeah. if that's if that kind of allowed you to to get over the or not get over but um you know move past this kind of grief period in a way that a lot of people like some of the friends that you've alluded to aren't able to do that cuz they don't have closure they don't have or you know if there's a tragic accident where someone just fucks up you know, that happens too. And there, you know, that you do kind of blame that person for, for being so stupid at that one moment where they just fucked up and now they're gone. And, um, and so you have to get past that emotion too, but this was kind of the universe, the universe just had plans for, for Nolan and, and there's nothing really that you feel like could have been done differently. So I don't know if that was, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the only thing that could have been done differently is acknowledging that the rock was wet maybe like that could have had that could have played a factor in that that ledge breaking but but I was there the year prior and it was soaking wet and I never feared being in danger like I never felt like I was in danger or scared or felt like the rock was that bad or anything like that so yeah I think it was just a freak accident but just really unfortunate yeah it's certainly not I mean just to clarify with people listening it's not sandstone and so it's not a, a rock that you would typically think of being, you know, loosened or or made more dangerous by water. Um, so the, again, but I mean, the anger thing is, it's it's interesting to hear you say that that in a uh, you know there was no one to be angry at, and and I, that is certainly a positive and a healthy thing because yeah, I mean, it, it's very easy to to dwell on that. Um, ha, you know, Andrew and I have been, I think, for were at some point in the last five or six years uh dwelling on that very thing and it's certainly not healthy so you know again not in any way saying like whoopee that was great that you got over it salve but uh but looking at these these sort of things that maybe gave you a path forward is a is a positive thing for other people dealing with this and again you're working with conrad anchor and and you know i know that angela Van Wiemersch was very much involved in those two people are unfortunate veterans of, of this very circumstance. I mean, especially Conrad in multiple, multiple ways. So, um, yeah, just sort of having that support group around you with the unfortunate, you know, co-experience, uh, must've been at least 
comforting in a in a you know sort of a gallows way definitely yeah i, I had a really great support system um i mean i hate that my friends have sure. gone through a similar thing but it was nice being able to connect with people that have experienced a similar thing yeah and just to underscore something you just said chris um which i think is kind of interesting and um and i think it's it's obviously sad that i even have this realization but each each person's death and grief processes looks different. There's no like one size fits all process for overcoming the loss of someone you love. And it is curious to like consider just the circumstances of their death and how they died, how, what they were doing, whether there was, you know, to what degree luck or bad decision-making or, you know, anything else comes into play into that picture affects how you feel about it affects how you process it and certainly affects probably the duration that you're in in a whole lot of pain like trying to deal with that um well this has turned into a depressing uh podcast um and it's you know of course this route um i'd be remiss not to not to note that um um this my co-host here chris has climbed this route uh with three lovely gentlemen all of whom have since died and so there's i don't know just kind of a grim uncanny weird kind of connection to this to this one climb that we're talking about here yeah i wasn't gonna bring it up but um but yeah <laughs> i mean in, in Hay- hayden kennedy uh is also was just referenced in an oblique way so yeah you know it's it was and i was sort of like very very peripherally involved as well um getting a call from Angela and, and trying to kind of uh, do a tiny, tiny thing to help with logistics um, when Nolan died too. So yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely played this huge part in, um, in my life as well in a weird way. And again, none of those guys uh, were killed while we were climbing and it was all afterwards, but um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I'm choking up right now. So uh, thanks Sal for, for, I mean, being so, so open about it and, and quite honestly, um, so frank and, and, uh, I think you can talk about it in a way that almost I can't, um, still, even though, you know, it was, it was so much more, you know, connected to what happened to you and what happened to Nolan than it was with me, but it still brings a lot of ache in my heart. Sav, um, before we move on to other topics that are hopefully less (laughs) depressing, um, (laughs) Is there anything you'd like to say about Nolan, just like what kind of person he was and maybe, yeah, give us a sense of what the world is is now missing? Yeah, Nolan was by far the the most just positive giving person that I had ever met. And I met him climbing in an area down in St. George maybe in like 2015 or 2016. And he was just like beaming with this smile. And I remember being like, man, I want to hang out with this guy. Like he seems fun. And then kind of learning that he was a base jumper. And I was like, my perception of base jumpers was like, oh, like they're kind of sketchy. I don't know. And then every time I would go to Moab, I would spend some time with him. And every time we hung out, he was just so happy for whatever it was you were happy about. And the like energy and positivity that he shared with everyone just really inspired me. And I think like I've been able to carry some of that with me since he died, which is kind of cool. Or at least I try to. 
Well, I said we were going to move on to less depressing topics, and so maybe your uh, ongoing wrist saga doesn't fit into that picture. Um, But we can certainly give a – because we referenced it, I feel like we need to – it's our Chekhov's gun that we need to to check that box in order to move on with the show. So tell us about um, the sort of insane issue with your wrist that you've been dealing with for a few years now. My wrist, my wrist issue is like kind of confusing and I started sharing it on social media because at the time I was sponsored by an accident insurance company, which was incredible because as a freelancer, your health insurance kind of sucks. And so, yeah, I started working with this accident insurance company and I had, I was climbing at the gym one day. And came back, it was bouldering, bouldering at the gym one day, and I came back and my wrist started hurting. And I was like, oh, it's probably just a weird tweak. I don't remember anything crazy happening. Like, yeah, I probably fell a few times, but no crazy falls. It started getting worse and worse and eventually got an MRI and it turned out that there was a bone in my wrist that was dying, um, which is sort of uncommon, but not that uncommon. And... The surgeon offered several different options and the one option that he was like really pushing ended up causing a bunch of complications and being an unnecessary surgery. And it's led to just a lot of issues. Um, How many surgeries have you had since that first one? I think since the start of 2021, I've had 11 different operations at this point. Um, I mean, that's insane. It's pretty insane. Yeah, there, there's been several I've actually been awake for, too. I've, mm-hmm. I've started, I've found a doctor. You're like, hurry I, this up. I got, I got stuff to do. Like, <laughs> exactly. Don't put me under. Exactly. Yeah, well, I've, I've finally found a good surgeon. He's amazing. And he's a climber, too, which has been really helpful because he kind of just understands what I do, right? And so he's allowed me to be awake during some of these procedures and, like, has pointed out, like, what's what. And it's a crazy experience watching your hand get cut open. <laughs> And feeling your tendons getting pulled on. Come on. It's out there. Stop. But but I've learned to be really interested in it and love it. (laughs) Not love it. I shouldn't say I love it, but I'm I'm fascinated by it. Like, it's It's just the new ayahuasca ceremony. (laughs) Yeah, right. Oh, God. I don't know about that. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so yeah, I've I've had uh, bones removed from my wrist at this point. I've had like, knee operations to try to save my wrist and nothing is working and sadly i'm because gonna have to get it they've fused. harvested bone matter from your knee to, to put into your wrist yeah they took so the the bad surgery that i had it was an eight and a half hour surgery with two surgeons they took bone cartilage and six inches of an artery and put it in my knee and they messed up my knee in the process and messed up my hand in the process too so i have so what's the status now are you are you able to climb can you move your wrist like normal yeah so i i last march i had a surgery where they removed the first row of bones out of your wrist so like basically the first like joint more or less in your wrist so i i more or less lost most of my motion it's like that's as far up as it goes compared to that it's kind of crazy but sadly i got an x-ray again a week ago because i've kind of been on and off climbing for the past little bit but with a lot of pain like i'm climbing and it's fun but i can't try hard like i want to try hard and it's fun to try hard when you've got that mindset and i also when when you know how to try hard it's not as fun not being able to to push yourself and try hard and so that's been that's been kind of a challenge for me the past year is like 
knowing when to not go too hard and but anyway so i've got one more surgery to do hopefully it's the last one i'm gonna fuse my wrist and i won't have any motion 12 is my lucky number so um <laughs> so i'm rooting for you <laughs> hope it's one. the last one yeah <laughs> uh, that is so heinous it's um, pretty heinous yeah what is the cause of bone death? Is that a genetic thing or is it something else? Yeah, it's, an, it's a genetic thing. It's actually pretty common and it seems like it's more common with climbers than you think. It's so basically my ulna or your ulna, you've got two bones in your arm, your radius and your ulna. My ulna is a little bit longer than it should be. So every time I turn my hand, it's jamming into those bones and it's just slowly killing it. So I actually had it on my left, the same issue on the left wrist too. And the doctor did the surgery that he should have done on my right and my left is no pain whatsoever at all fully functioning back wow. to good health so, so in, in a sense you're um a lot of the surgeries you've been doing have been trying to fix that initial kind of medical malpractice that uh that took place yeah everything's kind of been corrective surgeries to try to fix it and right. I, I tried to see if i could go after the doctor for med malpractice and all the lawyers that i saw said that i don't make enough money to prove a significant enough of a loss, which has been really frustrating too. <laughs> the um, system's well, not North, set up well. If, if Red Bull approaches you with another project idea, you can pitch, <laughs> pitch a, a lawsuit project to them. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> so like, I know what we, everything that we just talked about was like sad and depressing. Um, and through this journey, I've kind of had a lot of people say like oh man i i don't know if i could handle it like i don't know how you deal with it and i've kind of been like yeah i don't know how i deal with it either you know and i have had a few friends tell me that probably on the spectrum and i've always denied it and gotten defensive about it and more recently i did a little bit more research on it and found that women present way differently than men do and our women are um, way more underdiagnosed and misdiagnosed with autism. And so I was recently diagnosed with autism. And I think that is also a part of why I've been able to, I guess, kind of deal with and move through some of what I've gone through because I, my brain is just wired a little bit differently and I just don't have, uh, I don't get very emotional about things. So I, I like to think that now, as I've learned this, that my autism is kind of my, my superpower. Even though I was like slightly embarrassed when I first learned it, I was like, how did it take 31 years to figure out <laughs> this? But it's been really cool learning and so makes was a lot that of sense. really the, the impetus for to seek out this this diagnosis was was people kind of remarking on how resilient you appear to be in the face of uh, of all these tragic events that have uh, unfolded in the last few years? That's that's one reason. The other reason is just a, like a few friends, like I said, have commented and been like, yeah, I think you could be on the spectrum. And then spending, I spent a month in um, Florida visiting with my family and my brother and I were just fighting a lot. And every time we'd get in a fight, he'd be like, you're on the spectrum. Because I just couldn't understand <laughs> what he was, his emotions, I guess. <laughs> Um, so it was a culmination of things why I went to look into it, but it's since made a lot of sense in my life. That's interesting. My, my son is, uh, autistic and, uh, 
while we've been doing all of our research, I just, I like catch my, my partner, like reading this book and then looking over at me and then going back to reading the book and then looking over at me and it's just being like, <laughs> I think a lot of this stuff applies to you, Chris. I'm like, no, I'm just a dude. Like, that gets shit done. Like, that's just all I am. It's not. Anyway. It's just, that's how I responded, okay. too. I was like, no, definitely not. I even, I remember taking one of those, like, free online right. tests. That's like, are well, you autistic? And I, like, <laughs> I took it and I was like, there's no way. But I was totally holding right. my breath being like, but, like, there's nothing no, wrong no, with I, it. Like, there's a stigma yeah. around it, you know? Like, but, yeah. I'm, no, I mean, I we have a son. I mean, my son is. So, it's like. Yeah, yeah. I could go on about that. That's a, a total tangent, but um, I now feel I well, feel like does, it's kind of special that we got him actually because he's just such an interesting and um, different thinking little child. Um, that uh, I don't know. I think it's pretty cool actually now. So um, it's yeah. super cool. It's like only one percent of the population is diagnosed with autism. So yeah, he is special. Yeah. What has that uh, changed for you in terms of how you view yourself and? Um, how does that just influence your kind of perception of who you are and how you go through the world? You know, I like I literally just got the diagnosis maybe a month or two ago. So it's something that I'm definitely still processing and trying to understand and trying to learn more about. But the coolest thing has just been been learning about it, about autism as a whole and about more about myself, like why I am the way that I am. And why I've maybe felt kind of like an alien in social scenarios and whatnot. Um, and I think, you know, moving forward, it's just going to help me better in relationships and work in life. And just, you know, the one thing the doctor said to me was like, people with autism don't know balance. Like they don't know what the word balance even means. And that's something that I've really struggled with. And so knowing that, like now I can take a step back and try to focus more energy into finding more balance. Okay, so why don't we talk about uh, this film that you just put out, which is about El Gavilan, a, a, this kind of big wall in Mexico. Um, and it features a pretty incredible cast of characters, um, myself excluded, of course. Um, but uh, I was honored to just kind of be interviewed by you because I, I kind of flailed uh pathetically trying to climb this wall about 10 years ago. <clears throat> um, no, but not many people have been out there, but it's kind of been this new kind of resurgence with Bronwyn and uh, being kind of at the helm of, of rebolting and establishing roots out there. So what drew you to this story? What was it that made you want to make a film about this kind of random piece of limestone out in the Mexican desert? Listening to the Jeff Jackson and Norma cast is what drew me to this clip. <laughs> to be totally honest, like that's that's what it is. Uh, I was down in Petrero and it was at the very end of my trip and I met two Canadian climbers, Jacob Cook and Tony McLean. And they were like, oh, we're going out to this cliff again. You want to come shoot photos? We're going to try to put up a first ascent. And this was shortly somewhat shortly after the antarctica trip and i was still like really hungry for adventure i mean i still am but i was hungry for adventure and um just wanted to go out on a fun trip with these guys they seemed really patient and jacob was like you have to listen to the enormous cast first and then that was like what like yeah i was like all right i'm in 100 percent and 
so I went out there with Jacob and Tony and uh, they had been out there like a few weeks prior to climb El Gavilan. And the cliff itself is called La Popa and the route, uh, Jeff Jackson route is called El Gavilan. And so Jacob and Tony wanted to put up a new route. And um, so I went out there and shot photos of them. And then Bronwyn came out a few weeks later and she was injured and Jacob convinced her to rebolt the route basically. And then she convinced me and she convinced also probably like 15 or 20 other people that collectively came out over the few seasons that we went out there to come out and lend a hand every once in a while. And we didn't have any intentions of making a film when we went out there. Like I just went and shot photos. And this last year when we were out there, we met some uh, amazing female filmmakers in Texas who were like wanting to get into kind of adventure climbing filmmaking and we're like, well, you can come out and film this. Like, we're not planning to do anything necessarily, but if you want to come out and film, you should. And they hiked up to the top of the cliff and filmed a bunch for a few days and got some incredible stuff. And then we finished the rebolting. And the day that the girls sent, I sat on a fixed line and shot photos of every pitch. And then Jacob Cook, who's not a filmmaker, but handed him my camera and taught him how to use it pretty quickly he shot video of every single pitch and after Bronwyn and I were like should we try to make something so we kind of just tried to throw something together after the fact which is not what I would recommend doing when you're making a film but it was a really cool process to to try to make something after the fact like that I'm, I'm psyched to see that the cliff is getting a lot more action as I think Jeff is as well since speaking with him you know like it's such a special place out there and it's cool because we've gotten word from the locals that they're like buying donkeys and setting up a campground and they're psyched to have climbers come and visit and they're psyched to help them get to the top of the cliff and access the routes that are there. Oh, that's awesome to hear. Um, yeah, the, there is literally nothing. It's literally in a town called Los Remotos. I mean, there's nothing there um or at least there was nothing there when i was there so i, I could see yeah i could see a, a potential for some kind of you know kind of very um uh just rudimentary you know infrastructure that would support climbers being welcome addition to to accessing this place yeah so we actually found a different way to access the cliff now as you go the backside, and there's a small little town called san jose de la copa and there's a road that actually goes all the way to the top of the cliff. So you don't have to do the heinous cactus bushwhack. Got it. <laughs> Which I like, I, I kind of wish everyone would have to do it just because it sucks. <laughs> and well, that's I had where to all do the peyote it. is. So yeah, exactly. That's where the peyote, that's where you go. <laughs> there's peyote on the near San Jose de la Popa as well. Oh, okay. Shh, but it's super legal. It's super that's legal. A, that's the local beta. <laughs> there's yeah. peyote everywhere out there. Um, yeah. And, and to just uh, like, if, if people haven't heard this, this um, I think somewhat legendary EnormaCast, um, yeah, first of all, Jeff Jackson spins a tale no matter what he's talking about. And, um, you know, the, the story <laughs> was a centerpiece to that podcast and involved supernatural encounters with shape-shifting people. And, um, you know, you can't help but, like, get drawn in when Jeff Jackson starts to, starts to get uh, wired up to uh, – 
you know, <laughs> embellishment on his stories. And uh, anyway, it's, it is definitely a classic. And Jacob also told me that the whole reason they went there was, yeah, because of that. So, um, and I know Jeff's been ecstatic. Um, did you actually go film him in, or, or it was just a remote so, thing that he set up? Yeah, it was a remote thing. Sadly, we didn't really get, so like we tried to put this film together after the fact and we didn't really get any budget. So we were like trying to just piece together interviews with people where they were at. So that I was, I was I wondering I though, because if you, if you did, it's like you get, you get drawn into Jeff Hefe land, like, um, and you should try to do that sometime because it's a, it's a wonderful mystical place that, um, yeah, it, it's pretty fun to be in his sphere and kind of under his like spell in a lot of ways. Yeah. I wish that we could have used so much more of his interview because there was so many just pieces of gold in there. Jeff is amazing. And when I first saw his, the way that he's kind of, well, I haven't seen him in years. So, it, you know, he'd, he'd aged a couple of years and had his hair, had, you know, grown up by a couple feet and <laughs> to see him on camera for the first time in, in a while. Was, it was a uh, trip. Quite a treat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd only ever seen pictures of him like from when he was on Nogavalan back in the 90s so I had no idea when I got the hard drive and opened up the footage and was like oh my gosh look at this hippie dude sitting on like the beach in Hawaii like I had no idea what to expect and I was like this guy's amazing <laughs> what a character we couldn't have made the film without him <laughs> absolutely so you kind of alluded to some of the struggles with financing the film and just you know the the learning process that you went through of trying to make it out without kind of any funding and stuff like that. But I think I'd love to just, you know, there's probably quite a few people who are listening to this who maybe want to get into the role of or just the world of like filmmaking and stuff. And that's kind of your sweet spot. So what's, what, what do you, what kind of tips and stuff do you have for people who want to enter this world and start making, you know, either photographs or videos about, about climbing? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any right or wrong way to kind of go down the path of photo and filmmaking in the outdoor industry. But the way that I kind of did it was I was a climber first. Climbing climbing was like kind of at the core of what I was doing and why I was shooting photos. It was like shooting photos and making videos was just a way for me to fund going out and playing and having fun. And eventually photography and filmmaking has become a passion of mine um, almost more so than climbing at this point. But so, you know, there's also people that get into, that go to film school and then do it the opposite and then find climbing and want to, want to get into climbing. And part of me wishes that I would have done it that way. Like I would have had that kind of like film photo background because the issue with doing it the way that I did is I'm kind of like a jackass of all trades. Like I'm not good at one particular thing within the film industry. And when you go on like a big set for a production, for a commercial production or a doc or whatever it is, like there'll be 30 people on the crew and everyone has a very specific job. Whereas in the outdoor industry, the budgets are typically a lot smaller and it's like you're trying to do everything, which is which is good also. But it doesn't translate as well if you want to get out of the outdoor industry, <laughs> which I don't necessarily want to get out of it, but... It would be my, my, I guess my advice is to pick something, find something that you're good at and continue to perfect that craft, continue to perfect whatever that thing is that, that you want to do or that you're good at rather than trying to do it all. I'm 
going to promise you that I'm not going to title this episode Jackass of All Trades. <laughs> you can do that. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I like I, even with my climbing, like I, I like to just be able to do it all, but I'm not very good at one thing. <laughs> we recently had a conversation. We've had a few um, with Corey Rich. And uh, during that conversation, he cited you as an example of a of a woman in the industry that's uh, been successful that he admires, um, whose work he admires. Let me ask you a little bit about that. Um, you know, the diversity in climbing, whether it's genders, whether it's race, I think is the issue of our age in a lot of ways, especially in the last few years. And, you know, part of the reason Corey and, and us, we were talking about that is because, you know, at least 10, 20 years in the past, it was men that were were in the climbing industry, Beth Wald being an example of someone, you know, that he also brought up, but she was, she was one of those shining examples that's shining because she was all by herself in a lot of ways. What are your views on, has it been in any way tricky for you to navigate this sort of boys club? Um, what are your thoughts on, on being a representative of your gender in the, in the industry? And not just, we're not really talking about climbing, but talking about photography and filmmaking. Yeah, you know, I think being a female in the photo and film industry and in the outdoor industry specifically has in a lot of ways helped Mm -hmm. um, me and uh, like it's given me a lot of opportunities because of kind of like when the Me Too movement happened, like people were trying to hire and work with more women and that that really elevated my career in a lot of ways. At the same time, I have also had hurdles because I haven't had this like constant female uh, mentor or role model in my life. Um, and there are a lot of amazing, you know, female filmmakers and photographers out there, but the pool is so much smaller. And, you know, people want to mentor people that they see sort of in themselves, I think. And so I've, I haven't really had like I don't know, a, a mentor, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And I've kind of just been like paving my own path and trying to figure it all out. And I think the one thing that I've noticed is that women a lot of time don't value themselves as much as men do, and especially when it comes to negotiating rates and whatnot. We tend to undervalue ourselves. And that's, yeah, just a constant struggle. The theme here, you know, has been, you know, this, I guess, this kind of transition period for you. You dealt with this loss, you, which obviously, you know, probably made you think about your life and your position in this world and, and who you were and all those sorts of things. You know, you, you're looking at the struggle of, of climbing maybe being taken away from you, um, at least at a level that you'd like to do it. You know, all these things, it's a huge transition. This diagnosis that you're talking about, it's like it's an amazing couple years of struggles and emerging and reevaluating and things like that. So what what do you look at in terms of your professional career going forward? You know, what are your goals as far as that is concerned? Are you going to turn your energies even more fold to that because of, uh, you know, because of your wrist or, you know, what does the future look like professionally for you? Do you think? Yeah, my wrist is definitely making climbing hard right mm-hmm. now, um, which is frustrating. I, like I, all my friends are climbing. My identity is I, I'm a climber. And even though I can't climb, I'm still going out and hanging out at the crag because that's where I want to spend my time. Um, but, you know, m- my wrist is something that's going to continue to to limit me for the next few years until I can really get it to a stable place. And 
because of that, I'm definitely focusing more of my energy and time into uh, filmmaking um, and just trying to, to learn as much as possible and shoot as much as possible. And, you know, I think long-term goals, like I still just want to kind of live in a van and go climbing. Like I just want to have the freedom to, to, to do that. And I hope that I can kind of hustle and work my ass off right now while I'm injured so that when I'm not as injured, I can, I can go pursue my climbing goals. Sav, you have a a really, um, beautiful equanimity about you and I can see why people, uh, brought up that, (laughs) you know, that, that you, 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 I I guess unemotional is, is one negative way to say it, but I would, I would say it was an equanimity, but you seem to just really have a long-term perspective about, you know, returning to climbing sometime in the future and, uh, and being able to bide your time until then and focus on something else. So I think that that's pretty cool. I don't know if that's a function of just your personality or your, um, your, your new autism, uh, identity that you've assumed, but yeah, I think it's a, it is a superpower as you, as you just alluded to. Yeah. Superpower can definitely get me in trouble sometimes, but we're going to just, we're going to say it's superpower. (laughs) As we all know, climbers like us travel into the mountains for the journey and the sense of quietude that comes with high and wild places. But what if your casual free solo of a 10,000 foot face turned into a little bit of this? On the latest bonus episode of The Runout, we sit down for another movie night and review the semi-thriller, semi-slasher B-movie from 2021, The Ledge, in all its idiotic glory. If you'd like to hear that, or all the previous bonus episodes, or contribute something to the run it yourself, like a final bit or a buddy spray, or maybe you just want to throw a little money at two dudes that make you chuckle and keep you informed of all the hot topics in climbing, go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. That's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to support the runout. And frankly, if you don't, we will find you, and it's going to sound something like this. Drop it! Drop it! <laughs> On today's final bit, we have a story from Patreon rope gun Tim Johnson. Sort of a buddy spray and sort of a nod to one of the greats, Tim's story concerns the climbing legend Jimmy Dunn. We'll let him tell the rest. And Tim will receive a Yeti Yonder water bottle for his submission. Buddy Spray is open to any Patreon member. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and support the runout. And thanks again to Yeti for sweetening the deal. Now, on to the spray. So I would preface the story just by saying that this isn't exactly like a buddy story because... Uh, I can't really call Jimmy Dunn a buddy of mine, but he he is a dude that if you spend any amount of time out climbing in Colorado in the last, I don't know, 50 years, you'll probably run into him. Uh, So one time I was up 
back when I was in college, bouldering uh, up in Ute Pass. And as I often did, I'd go up there and after a day of class and go boulder for an afternoon, often by myself. And uh, one day I was up on a boulder uh, with a pad under me and out, you know, out from the scrub brush emerges uh, Jimmy Dunn. And, you know, as he often did, he just sort of emerges from the, the oaks. And uh, I got down and I started talking to him and we were kind of sitting and chatting and he was, you know, giving me some beta, talking, telling stories as he often did. And he was telling me that the boulder where we were sitting at, he said the last time that he was there, he was spending the day and having a picnic with his partner and, and sort of climbing and they'd finished up their day and the sun was setting and then they'd gotten in their car and driven back down to Colorado Springs. It's like a 20 minute plus drive, he said, or maybe 30 minutes to where he lived. And he said that when he got back to his house, he noticed as he was unpacking his climbing gear that he saw um, there was an ant crawling on his climbing shoe. And he said that he had remembered there was an ant hill next to where they'd been sitting down next to the boulder. And so being the caring soul that he is, apparently, Jimmy Dunn told me that he got back in his car with this ant and, and... drove after dark with his headlamp and found the anthill that this ant presumably had had emanated from and redeposited the ant back on this anthill and then drove all the way back down to Colorado Springs. So as far as, you know, Jimmy Dunn stories go, like he's kind of a legendary character. This is probably the most tame one I've ever heard. Uh, it's a gentle story even, but Still, it really was. It struck me that this guy drove all the way back up just to put an ant back on an ant hill and have it be in its proper place in the universe. And I was thinking about this last week, actually. And I was thinking, you know, out of all of the the characters I've encountered in my life, climbing or otherwise, like Jimmy Dunn was he's probably the closest thing to a, a shaman that you will encounter in modern day America. Uh, in, or at least in the climbing community. So I thought that was a story to share. You've just finished another episode of the Runout Podcast. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Caloose. And you can reach me at Andrew at runoutpodcast.com. Dude, come on. <laughs> because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, 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 it's, no, no. it's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, you should go and sign up at Patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. No, pot.com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money. Give us some money.